You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a movement within the Western church called the Church Growth Movement. And this movement really started with a very noble cause. It started with people really being focused on the mission of God and asking the question, how do we reach more people with the gospel? And people came up with strategies and they wanted to be relevant and contextual with the gospel and reaching out to the culture because people really had a passion uh, for reaching more, more lost people because America was increasingly less and less of a Christian culture. And over time, though, what happened is the the movement really became less missional and more attractional. And the question shifted from how do we reach more people with the gospel to this question, how do we get more people to our church? How do we fill our our, our rooms? And this, you know, led to the rise of mega churches and it led to the rise of celebrity pastors and even pastors more like CEOs and, you know, church boards and church staffs really operate a lot more like the business world. And, you know, there's all these, these books about, you know, just implement these strategies and you'll grow your church, right? It kind of came very American. Now, I'm not one to be overly critical of the church because I believe God uses all different expressions of church, uh, big churches and little churches. And yet, there are some very real problems that were created uh, within Christianity in America from the church growth movement. And I think specifically, one of those problems is that you can grow in number without growing in spiritual maturity. You You can get a lot of people in a room without necessarily discipling them become deeply formed followers of Jesus. Ed Stetzer uh, picks up on this. He says this, our American consumer-driven culture, as well as an unhealthy obsession with success, has resulted in a formula-based approach to God's mission. The movement, speaking of the church growth movement, became less missiological and more Americanized. And even though the church growth movement is kind of past its heyday, it was followed by, you know, the missional church movement. And today, you know, there's kind of other emerging movements within the Western church. The impacts are still largely seen today. And for us, this really matters because it changes the way that we do church. It answers the question, how should we grow? Uh, Do numbers matter? Now, I do believe that numbers matter to God. Numbers matter so much to Jesus that he talked about, even if he had 99 sheep that were found, he's always going to go after that one. So Jesus, he cares about every single lost soul. And yet we can prioritize numbers and we can actually miss the target of true success on our mission. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at church, we're going to be looking at growth, and how can we actually grow in the way that God wants us to grow. So go ahead and open your Bible as we continue uh, in our series through Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all 
things. We're going to stop right there because these verses right at the beginning of our teaching text are really confusing. And we're going to get more to the idea of church growth and structure and strategy in just a minute. But we really have to start by answering this question, what are the lower regions? I know that can be something that kind of trips people up. And so we have to address this. What are the lower regions that Paul is referencing here? Well, first of all, he's quoting from Psalm 68 when he talks about, uh, talks about God you know, ascending and leading the host of captives. But then he talks about this, this whole side note, and it truly is a side note. Notice it's in parentheses in most translations that Jesus also descended to the lower region. So there's four main options. We're going to zip through these, and uh, I'll explain my preferred option out of the four. So the first option is the lower regions refers to the underworld. Or this might be called Hades. In 1 Peter 3.19, the Apostle Peter talks about the, Jesus visiting the spirits now in prison. And many scholars think that this is not Jesus suffering in hell after he died on the cross. But this is rather Jesus going to the spirits who are in spiritual bondage, evil spirits, demons, and proclaiming his victory. And, and, and almost like, you know, nail in the coffin type deal, I did it right? I, I paid for the sins of the world. The second option is this refers to the incarnation. This would be Jesus lowering himself or emptying himself as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. And that truly is a dissension, right? From the heavenly throne to take on flesh and become a man. Uh, the third option is this refers to Christ's death on a cross, uh, so that would mean not just the fact that Jesus took on flesh and, and, and became the God-man, but he actually died. You know, this is Philippians 2.8. He died even a death on a cross, right? How much lower can you go other than dying for the sins of the world? And then the fourth option is that this refers to the Holy Spirit, which, you know, sometimes when we're talking about the Trinity, they can all kind of, you know, take one another's place, right? The Holy Spirit at times is called the Spirit of Jesus. And this is Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Right, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's a, a kind of descending, right? being poured out on mankind within, uh, within the early church. So those are the four main options. And I read a number of different commentaries in my study and preparation for today. And no joke, I found commentators, like reputable commentators, who represented all four of those different views. Uh, so in a very real sense, you could kind of take your pick. My preferred option is actually a combination of options two and three. I think the most logical way to take this is the fact that Jesus, before he ascended in his resurrection and in ascending to heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of God, uh, he descended and he took on flesh in the incarnation and he died for our sins on the cross. And that's the dissension that Paul is talking about before he rose. But the whole point, regardless of how you take, you know, that kind of side note, the whole point of this is Psalm 68 really refers to God leading the captives, speaking of the Israelites being in captivity in Egypt, leading them to freedom out of Egypt, and then God ascending to Mount Sinai, where he was on the top of Mount Sinai, and that's where you get the Mosaic Covenant with the people. So in that moment, what Paul is doing is he's taking this beautiful picture from the Old Testament and saying that's what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Jesus has ascended on high. He is victorious in his resurrection and in the ascension, and he shares the spoils of war with us. I think about in Exodus when uh, God was leading the people out of Egypt, he actually instructed Moses to go and to take gold from the Egyptians. Like they plundered the Egyptians on their way out. So God gave them gifts to provide for them in 
the wilderness. And in the same way, when Jesus ascends to his heavenly throne, he shares that victory with us. And and he gives us gifts, specifically gifts, so that we can be a part of his mission, so that we can be a part of his kingdom. And I would just say to you today, maybe you're someone who has never responded to the good news of the gospel. I want to invite you today, you can receive the best gift available, and that's the gift of God's saving grace. God is rich in mercy. He is great in love and he loves you. Even if you've strayed from him, even if you've sinned against him, he wants to forgive your sins and to raise you up and to give you a new life in Christ. And today you can respond to the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you in his death, burial, and resurrection by praying and inviting God to forgive your sins and to lead your life. Today can be the day that you receive the best gift, the gift of salvation. And if that's you, I would also encourage you to take the step of baptism. Baptism is the ceremony that Jesus instructed us to do when we put our faith in him. We actually have uh, river baptisms at the Boise River coming up on September 5th, Labor Day weekend. It's going to be an awesome time to celebrate people putting their faith in Jesus. And you can sign up to get baptized at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. And there's also a video on there that you can watch, a baptism 101 video that can answer some of those other questions you might have about baptism. But for you, maybe you've already received that gift of salvation. You've already put your faith in Jesus. Jesus still gives you gifts. He still gives you gifts so that you can serve in his kingdom. I think back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But Jesus doesn't just create us and command us to go and, and do good things and send us out by ourselves. He actually empowers and gifts us to be able to do those things. We could say it like this. Jesus doesn't call the gifted. He gives gifts to the called. He doesn't just call the gifted in that he doesn't call, you know, just the MVPs or those who've who've earned a spot on, you know, the kingdom of heaven team. He, He doesn't just call the elite. He calls all of us to follow him. And he actually, when he calls us, he's going to gift us to live out our callings. If you look at many of the Bible heroes, they started out as zeros, right? They started out as people who were on the fringes, people who were outcasts, people who didn't live very righteous lives. But once they met Jesus or once they were part of God's mission, God gifted them to live out that calling. And God does the same exact thing for us. So often what prevents us from living out our calling in God's kingdom is comparison. We're too busy comparing ourselves. And Paul makes it really clear here that that Jesus is going to give us gifts according to his own wisdom and his own discernment. And it's going to look different. Your gifts are going to look different than the next person. There's an incredible amount of diversity in the gifts that people have within God's kingdom. It always makes me think about Matthew chapter 25 and the parable that Jesus told of the talents, where Jesus himself is the master and he gives different amounts of money to these three different servants. And the whole point of that parable is to use whatever God has given you. Use whatever God has entrusted you. Don't compare yourself, right? Don't sit there and and bury your talents and not do anything with them. Don't be lazy with what God has given you, but get in the game. And if you use what God has entrusted to you, Jesus promises at the end of that parable, he's going to give you more. He's going to entrust you with more, and he's going to empower you so that you can make an even greater impact for God's kingdom. That is the key to a life filled with fulfillment, a life full of meaning and purpose and passion for what God is calling us to do. All right, we're going to read more about what God has given us. And Jesus doesn't just give us gifts. He also gives leaders to help steward people with those gifts. Let's go ahead and continue in Ephesians 4, 
verse 11. And he, speaking of Jesus, gave apostles, gave the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. We're going to stop right here. In fact, verses, uh, these verses, verses 11 through 16, it's one long sentence. And so we're going to stop right here because there's a lot to break down in just these few verses. Uh, First of all, what Paul says is he says, Christ not only gives us gifts, but he gives the church leaders. And he lists five specific leadership roles within the church. There's not, it's not limited to five. There are other roles that you can do to be a leader in the church. But he does clearly talk about these leadership roles are really essential to helping move the church forward. So I want to go through each one of these five. The first one is apostles. Apostles are people who are sent out to do something New. Now, when we think of apostles, we usually think of the 12 apostles, right? Jesus commissioned them in Acts 1-8 to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's him commissioning them to go and to do something new. What is the new thing that they were going to do? They were going to start the early church. They were, they were planting churches. And, and apostles does not just refer to the 12 apostles. Paul himself is an apostle because God commissioned him to go and to plant churches and be a missionary. And so really a leader who leads in an apostolic way is someone who's commissioned. Apostello means sent out. That's the Greek word where apostle comes from. And really we can say that visionary leaders, uh, leaders who have that gift of leadership or really are church planters or missionaries, those are leaders who lead in an apostolic Way. That's the first group of leaders in the church. The second group is prophets. Prophet is someone who speaks guidance and encouragement straight from God. Uh, they're speaking in a way that, that God is leading them because we, all, we know that we all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And there are some church leaders who are actually more gifted at discerning the Spirit's voice in their lives. And God uses those people. Now, now this is different than the Old Testament prophets. Uh, usually, it, this is different than, than prophets, you know, giving predictions about, you know, doom and gloom and eschatological things and the end of the world. Usually, the prophets in the early church really seemed to have more to do with encouragement and guidance and spiritual wisdom that the Holy Spirit is leading them. You can read more about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Or Paul says that prophecy is a spiritual gift that we should all really desire because we all have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it's for the purpose of edification and comfort and encouragement. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica is he says, don't despise prophecies, right? We should be very you know, wary of false prophets and false prophecies, right? He says, don't despise prophets, prophecies, but test everything hold to what is good, and and reject what is evil. So the the correct way to to view the spiritual gift of prophecy is not to say that God's spirit never speaks to anyone anymore, but to really test it and discern it and especially weigh it against what God has already revealed in Scripture. The third leadership role within the early church is the evangelists. Evangelists. An evangelist is someone who takes the gospel to the world. Now, you might think of some of those, you know, big evangelists like Billy Graham or Luis Palau or some of these people who literally preached the gospel to hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people. And that's certainly true, right? God has gifted some evangelists to do that. But I also think about the ways that evangelists are someone who's just a really good neighbor, 
really good at getting into conversations about faith and about Jesus, someone who's maybe even a little bit more outgoing and can walk up to anyone on the street and get into a conversation with them and reach them and share the gospel with them. And we always need more evangelists. To be an evangelist simply means to share your faith. Now, I believe in a very real sense, every Christian should be doing evangelism, but some church leaders are especially gifted as evangelists. Uh, The fourth role that we see here is shepherds. It's the Greek word poimen, and it's actually where we get our word pastor. Some English translation says pastor. Pastor and shepherd, they're synonyms uh, in the Greek. And a shepherd leads the local church. That's what a pastor does. It's someone who's specific. They're not going out necessarily uh, as a missionary. They're someone who's planted right where they are, and they're leading the local church. This is what I do, right? I'm a pastor. And pastor is actually my preferred word. Some people, you know, sometimes call pastors ministers, as we'll see in a second. I believe every Christian is actually a minister. And so to only call the church staff ministers, I think is maybe a little bit of a misconception. But a pastor, some are especially called to lead the local church. Now we follow the example of the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. So what does a shepherd do for the church, the local church? Where they feed, lead, care, and protect. Really quickly, they feed, you know, sharing God's word, you know, helping there be spiritual nourishment. They lead, right? They make leadership decisions and they, they decide the direction that God is leading the church. They care, right? A good shepherd knows the name of the sheep. They know the people, right? They're, they're, they're deeply embedded in the community. They lay down their life for the sheep and then they protect, right? Protecting from false doctrine, protecting from danger, protecting in all those different ways. And then the fifth role we see here is teachers. Uh, to be a teacher is to be someone who speaks truth from God's Word. That's a little bit of the difference between a prophet and a teacher. A prophet is really relying on, you know, uh, inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And a teacher is just really good at biblical interpretation, reading what God has already revealed in Scripture. This is what I would say my, my main gift out of these five would be is just a Bible teacher, someone who's good at, in, uh, at reading God's Word, interpreting it, and applying it to real life. Now, this is different than just education. Because when we talk about the Bible, we don't want to have just the end goal of information. I want to preach the Bible for transformation. So so Bible teaching really has to do with application. It has to do with connecting it, contextualizing it to a specific group of people, and then also calling them to action, exhorting them and calling them to live their lives differently. The reality is when the church is working right, There's going to be spiritual leaders who are called to that role, who are leading the church and helping the church. So here's the church leader's job, okay? I'm going to give us a formula here in just a second. It's going to be a formula for church growth at risk of oversimplification. But first of all, we have to recognize the church leader's job is to equip Christians. That's my job. Fundamentally, my job is to equip you as a follower of Jesus, to follow him and to use your gifts. Uh, The word equip is the Greek word katartismos, and it literally means to put something in order, almost like if you've ever dislocated a bone. It's to set a bone or or to, to, to reset your joint. And the reality is when church leaders are doing the ministry themselves and they're not equipping the church to do ministry, literally what, what Paul is saying is that the church is disjointed. 
is something's out of whack. And maybe you've had that, right? Maybe you had a, a crash on a mountain bike or, or, or up skiing and something was just, you know, out of, you needed to go see the chiropractor because something was just disjointed or out of whack. That's what happens to the church when leaders do the ministry and people show up to watch. And that is not God's design for the church. In fact, according to Jesus, if you look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, he talks about how we see a greater harvest of righteousness, how we see a greater influence for God's kingdom. This is what Jesus says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers, are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what is my job as a leader? It's not to work harder so that we have a greater influence in the church. It's actually to equip more workers to get you in the game, to get you using your gifts and motivate you and call you to action and equip you and train you and give you the, the, the skills that you need so that you can actually use your gifts for God's kingdom. When the church is working right, the leaders aren't doing all the ministry. They're actually raising up more leaders and, and equipping Christians, everyday Christians, to use their gifts for God's kingdom. So that's my job, okay? That's the church leader's job. So what is your job if you're not necessarily working for a church or in vocational ministry? Well, like I said earlier, every Christian is a minister. So here's every Christian's job is serve the church to equip the saints for ministry for the building up of the church. That word ministry is literally uh, the word diakonos, right? It's, it's where we get the word deacon, but it just means to serve. It means to serve. Minister or ministry might sound intimidating, but every Christian is a minister and that every Christian is called to serve the church. Every Christian has been given gifts according to the, the grace that Jesus determined, according you know, to Jesus making that call, giving you specific gifts, and he expects you, he fully expects you to use those gifts, not just to further your career, not just for your own personal benefit or gain, but to serve the church for the building up of the church. This is what Martin Luther called the priesthood of all believers. Notice in these five foundational roles that Paul says should exist within the church, he doesn't list priest in any of those roles, right? If you look at the, the old covenant, there were priests within the synagogue, within uh, the, the tabernacle, right? There were priests there. But in the New Testament, we have one high priest. It's Jesus. He's our mediator between us and God. He's the one who atones for our sins. And then we are all, you can read about this in, in, in Peter's letter to the church. We are all part of the priesthood of believers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, you yourselves, speaking to the whole church, are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying, the apostle Peter is saying the work of ministry, this distinction that there's just a few people who are clergy and then the rest of the people are laity, they just kind of show up and attend, that doesn't exist within the church. We are all part of this holy priesthood and there's work to be done. And God had created you for good works and he fully expects you to do it. At Hill City, the way that we say this is one of our core values is everyone has a job to do. Everyone has a job to do. And so here's my formula. If you want a formula for church growth, and I didn't get this from some strategy book from the business world. If you want a formula for church growth, here's the formula. Called leaders, so that's leaders who've been called by Jesus, who've been appointed by Jesus, called church leaders, called leaders, plus empowered Christians, Christians who have identified their spiritual gifts and are using them. They've been trained up. They've been equipped, right? Called leaders plus empowered Christians equals church growth. 
I mean, it's pretty simple, and, and I know that's maybe even an oversimplification, but that's what it leads to. Now, what kind of growth are we talking about? We have called leaders plus empowered Christians equals church growth. Is it numerical growth? Maybe. Uh, but in fact, we're going to see in the rest of our passage five different ways that the church is going to grow. Let's go ahead and finish off our text. Finish off this one really long sentence all the way from verse 13 to verse 16. Paul says this, this will be the result when we live out our, our faith the way that Jesus calls us to until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up, notice that language of growth, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint and which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot there, okay? So there's a lot of dense things here. I want to break it down in the context of, okay, when we have called leaders and they're equipping empowered Christians, it leads to church growth. And I think there's five different things that Paul says the church will grow in these ways. The first way we're going to grow is we're going to grow in unity. He says we're going to grow in the unity of the faith. Uh, When we are on mission, when you are using your gifts and you're serving in God's kingdom, what happens is when we're all going the same direction, it, it stops mattering as much which denomination you're from. I think about Catholics and Protestants who are all serving together, maybe feeding homeless people on the street. You know, you're not asking, what church do you go to? You're not, you know, you're not worried about what jersey you're wearing, what logo is on the door of your church when you're all serving together. And we're going to actually be more united in that one faith that Paul just talked about earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. There is really, truly one faith. We might disagree on some of, you know, the side issues of the faith, but there's one central faith. And when we're on mission and we're active and we're empowered and using our gifts for the sake of ministry, we're going to be less divided and more united. The next way we're going to grow is we're going to grow closer to Jesus. What this means is it means we're going to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. And and, and most of the time we're talking about knowledge of God or knowledge of Jesus. We're not talking about just you're going to know more, you know, cognitively or in your mind, know more facts about Jesus. We're talking about knowing him relationally. We're going to get closer to Jesus. I think about in John chapter 13 when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Remember, Jesus himself is a servant. And he goes, remember what happens? He goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, no, he resists. You're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says something really interesting. He says, unless I wash your feet, you will have no part of me. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, you refusing to let me serve you and you refusing for us to even serve one another, it actually distances us relationally from him. And so we're going to grow closer to Jesus and we're going to get closer in our relationship with Jesus when we're active, when we're serving one another, when we're living out our faith in that way. The next way we're going to grow is we're going to grow in maturity. This is what he talks about when he talks about the mature manhood or growing in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This means we're going to look more like Jesus. Uh, We're going to look more like Jesus. We're going to grow to 
maturity, I want to remind you of our stages of discipleship, right? We talk about sometimes we have these five different stages of discipleship. Someone who's pre-faith, someone who's brand new to the faith, someone who's young in the faith, someone who's, you know, growing in the faith, and then someone ultimately who's mature in the faith. Those five stages. For us as a church, we want to see people become and make disciples. That means you're growing to maturity. But the difference between someone who's maybe earlier or less mature in the faith and someone who's more mature is really people starting to turn that corner to serving, to faith-stretching opportunities, to, to generosity. Remember, Jesus came to, to, to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, and so he came to serve, not to be served. And so really, if we want to reach growing or mature faith, we're going to serve. We're going to activate our gifts. We're going to be active. We're not just going to be attenders. We're not just going to be on the sideline. We're going to get in the game. We're going to grow to maturity. There's going to be certain elements. If a church never activates, if a church leadership never calls their people to action and to serving, what's going to happen is that church will, will always tend towards spiritual immaturity. They will never reach the maturity that God is calling them to reach because Jesus is a servant. The fourth way that we're going to grow is we're going to grow in truth. Paul says we're speaking the truth in love. Literally, this could be translated truthing. It, it's not just this idea uh, of just the truth that you say or just the truth that you know. It's you're living out of the truth. And this is in direct contrast to someone who's spiritually immature. They're going to be tossed to and fro by all the different you know, schemes of the devil or, or all of the different philosophies of this world or whatever culture says. And you see that. I've known so many people who when they're not grounded in scripture, not, they're not grounded in God's calling on their lives, man, they're always changing directions. They're always pivoting. They, they don't know which way is up or which way is down. It's really this, this picture of being children in a stormy sea. I mean, imagine that. Imagine you know, who would buy a ticket to a cruise ship if you found out, oh yeah, all of the staff on the cruise ship, they're toddlers. You know, they're all toddlers. They're really skilled toddlers though, you know? Like nobody would want to get on that boat because when the storm hits, you know, you need maturity in that situation. And this is one of the ways that good leaders, good church leaders, leaders who are called by Jesus and appointed by Jesus can actually help grow the church. It's why good Bible teaching matters. It's why doctrine matters. It's why, you know, a leader who can actually disciple someone and raise them up to maturity really matters. We cannot have a shallow or a superficial church. We need spiritual depth so we can grow in truth. We can understand the truth of God's word. We can understand how to speak truth to others and ultimately live out of that place of truth because truth is going to set us free. And then the fifth way that we're going to grow is we're going to grow in love. We're going to grow in love. Uh, Paul says that this church, this kind of church who does operates this way, who is the kind of church that God wants it to be, is going to build itself up in love. That might look numerical, right? We're going to grow bigger. We're going to reach more people in love. But ultimately, we're going to become a more loving community. According to Jesus, the greatest command is the command to love to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if we want to become the kind of community that demonstrates this love your neighbor as yourself kind of love, this self-sacrificial, this, this concern and care for someone else, even if they never pay you back, the way that we do that is by serving one another. It's by using our gifts. And it's through the spiritual leadership that God gives a few to, to steward the many and to equip the many so that everyone's using their gifts to follow Jesus together. 
And we can say it like this. Here's our main point for today. A program can gather a crowd, but only disciples can make more disciples. I'll say it again. A program, right, just running services and, and trying to get people to show up to service, you can gather a crowd. Anyone can gather a crowd by selling tickets, by opening up a program. But only disciples, only people who are truly been disciple, and discipleship requires relationship. It requires truth. It requires love. It requires some of these things. Only disciples can make more disciples. And that's what we're going for as a church. We want to be the kind of church, not just that, that uses success according to, to, to books and popular strategies, and that's maybe even changing depending on whatever you know, the culture is saying defines success. We want to define success like Jesus defines success. We want to be a church that isn't led by you know, this, this parlor tricks or strategy. We want to be a church that is led by the Holy Spirit. So you can grow in number without growing in spiritual maturity. And so what we want to do is we want to be a church that grows in our discipleship to Jesus. We want to grow in our spiritual maturity, in our depth. And as we do that, I believe we're going to grow in our influence in the world. We're going to reach more people because only a disciple can truly make more disciples. So today, there's only one practice for today. Instead of a list of practices, there's only one practice. Are you ready for it? Use your gifts to serve. Use your gifts to serve. You have been given gifts, right? Jesus Christ himself, he rose into victory. And what does he do when he rises to victory? He gives gifts. He gives gifts to the church. And he's entrusted you, right? Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. He's given you something to use. Don't downplay it. Don't stop comparing it and start using what you have. Be faithful to use what you have for God's kingdom. I love how R. Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the bottom line for every Christian believer is that each one of us should be involved in some kind of ministry, right? There, this is a priesthood of all believers. There's some kind of ministry for every single person in the kingdom. And then he says this, praise God, many have created their own areas of service to refugees, unwed mothers, to the homeless, the elderly, the handicapped, the pornography battle, pro-life witness, to name a few. And so he just goes through and he says, there's people who are serving even outside of the church. And I would just say that to you. If you're serving, you know, the, the capital C, the, the global church, even outside of the walls of Hill City, that's perfect. You're using your gifts to serve God's kingdom. And maybe that is exactly what God has called you to do. But if you're not serving anywhere, and I would say, especially if you're not serving at Hill City, I want to invite you to serve at Hill City Church. Remember, this is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's getting to the point of unity and serving one another. This is going to be the game changer for us that's going to create the kind of culture that God wants us to be. So I want to invite you specifically to use your gifts to serve at Hill City Church. You can go to hillcityboise.org slash serve. And we just have a bunch of different areas that you can serve, a bunch of different programs we have listed on hillcityboise.org slash serve. There's pictures on there. You can read about some of the different areas. And at the very bottom of the page, it just says sign up to serve. Would you click that button today? Would you click that button today and sign up for an area? And I can tell you, we will be prompt. We will, we will call you if you sign up. We will email you. We will track you down. No, not, not that, quite that creepy, but we will follow up with you because we want you to serve, not just because we need people to serve. We, already, we have a ton of people to serve. We believe God will always provide for our needs, but you need to serve. It's important for you. If you want to reach that kind of unity, if you want to contribute to unity, if you want to grow in, in maturity, if you want to grow in truth and in love, if you want to grow closer to Jesus, then you'll serve. Because Jesus says those who serve, man, they really have a part 
in him. So go to hillcityboise.org slash serve and sign up for a place to serve today. Because when we have called leaders and you add that to empowered Christians, the church is going to grow. And we're not just going to grow deeper in our relationship to Christ. We're going to grow wider in our influence. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.